Welcome everybody to the Trade Geek Podcast. I, uh, oh my God, I don't know what I'm thinking, but I, I have, um, I have invited two of the partners of my firm to join me today. One of whom is a learned and accomplished member of society, uh, Mike Varney, and a frequent visitor to uh, both my podcasts in the in the um, in the uh, <laughs> trade school biweekly. Um, bi-weekly uh webex will niblo so will i'm not sure how you became a partner of the firm i think you might have been like a make-a-wish kid that just hung around is that what happened uh it's it's the last name so is that it what it is by, yeah it's uh, nepotism is it nepotism your dad was a partner so they had to let you hang around he was yeah yeah i don't know i've seen your work i mean you're <laughs> you're relatively talented <laughs> Yeah. And then, uh, Mike, how long have you been with the firm? I've been with the firm about 14 years. Wow. So that would make you a bit of an old timer, I would imagine. I'm a bit, not quite as uh, deep a history as Mr. Niblo there, but uh, I've been around a while. So before you were hit over the head with a blunt instrument and forced to work here, um, what did you do prior to coming to Crow? So I spent uh, most of my time in large multinational organizations, M&D, kind of manufacturing distribution type companies as a controller and in their internal audit groups. I see. I see. Um, and how did you end up working in this madness of, of, of the business, getting engaged in, I don't want to say it's supply chain, because I think you do something a little more fascinating than that. So I think it's... Uh, you know, Sarbanes, actually, I hate to say it, okay. is what got me out of industry into consulting. Hmm. Um, and so spent the first part of my time dealing with financial controls. But as we did that work, you know, quickly realized there's a lot of other pain points companies are having um, and places where uh, mitigation and identification of issues need to occur. So that's kind of how it's, it's morphed into other things, specifically into supply chain. Okay. All right. Well, before we go any further with today's topic, I just want to establish a couple of facts. Now, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but are either of you doctors or medical professionals of any kind? I am not. No, sir. All right. Now, Will, I believe they call you Dr. Love. Is... <laughs> no? I don't think anyone has ever referred to me. Dr. <laughs> no? Dr. Love, no. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, we're, we're talking about a virus today and neither, and none of us have degrees in public health because that would just be hysterical, honestly. Um, and, and I might be a doctor, but I'm the worthless kind. I, I can't prescribe medication. So we're talking about a virus and it's spread, but we're not talking about it from the, um, from the point of giving people medical advice. We're really talking about it from the perspective of how it's affecting supply chains and my utter disgust at the fact that that people don't seem to have a backup plan but today is the uh, 9th of march and um as of today and as of this time there are currently or there have been 113,579 confirmed cases of the virus there have been 3,995 deaths and 62,496 people have fully recovered from the virus. This is according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus COVID-19 Global Case-by-Case Study. 
and their website, which is available online. Um, they keep a, a, a they keep a pretty impressive, I think impressive, case by case website that they uh, they update. I believe every five minutes. So odds are that we will see that number tick up to 115,000 by tomorrow, and we'll see the death toll probably eclipse 4,000 tomorrow. Um, what I think is fascinating is that after China with its 3,000 deaths, the second highest death toll is Italy with 463. And the third highest death toll is actually Iran. The fourth is South Korea with 53, 28 in Spain. And um, from there, there's a, uh, another part of China with 22, and then France with 19. So, you know, we're, we're in a relatively the early days of this spread outside of China, there's a lot of public, I guess I'd call it hysteria, you know, this weekend, driving from place to place, trying to find um, hand sanitizer. You'd think I was um, out in the woods with a pig looking for truffles for Christ's sakes. Um, and more to the point, we are currently in the midst of kind of this perfect storm between a trade war the end of Chinese New Year, a virus, um, you're, you're looking at this bizarre moment of companies having a hard time managing their supply chains. And I think it's a strange time to not have a plan B. And I guess that's why I've invited the two of you to be on here today to talk about the, this unlikely situation we find ourselves in where companies don't seem to have a plan B. And I, I guess I'd like to get your comments on that, whichever one of you wants to go first. I think I can, well, it's okay. I'll kind of jump in here from the standpoint of, um, uh, I'm going to say risk identification, you know, kind of a understanding or having a process to actually know where to put that plan B in place. You know, as, as we talk to a number of our clients, they've got supply chain organizations, they're focused on sourcing and procuring um, items, but we don't see a lot of processes in place from a formal perspective of identifying where breaks can occur in that supply chain. I think there's discussion, some informality, um, but I have not seen, or we have not seen a consistency around um, truly identifying where those break points could be and where are those break points aligned to their critical products and sources. So I think the, the first kind of thing I would say to that, Pete, is knowing where they should put in some of these fixes and think about these plan Bs. Um, we just not have seen a lot of organizations with processes to go through to identify those potential breakpoints in, in an organized fashion to then even start to think about a plan B. You know, I just, uh, before coming to Crow, I worked in industry as a materials manager at a, you know, a mid-market manufacturer. And like other manufacturers, we, we ran really lean, right? And so, uh, and then post-recession, we got even leaner. Uh, and, and, you know, we did a good job of managing our supply uh, and, you know, understanding the capabilities of our supply base, but we were single sourced uh, in, in more areas than, uh, than, than made sense, frankly. And the time and energy needed to 
you know, develop alternative plans and contingency plans and, you know, kind of formalize our business continuity process. We just, we, we didn't give it the effort that it warranted until, you know, until an event occurs and then it's all hands on deck and, and reacting. And so, you know, I, I spend most of my time with, you know, mid-tier manufacturers and, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the folks that we're talking to, they're talking about, how to grow the strategic importance of procurement materials management and supply chain within their organization. And the idea of, you know, advanced business continuity planning is just, it's just not where they're at. Uh, I think they have a pulse on some of the single sourcing. I think they understand, uh, you know, when they have, uh, you know, kind of a global strategy, but they don't, uh, they're not doing the things that they need to do to, uh, to be prepared for this type of an event. Right? Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, let's, let's just see so you guys are being all sweet and, um, and diplomatic about it, but that's not who I am. So uh, there's probably a reason why I don't actually have equity in the firm. That might've been <laughs> a strategic move on the part of the firm. Um, I, I think that companies have spent a tremendous amount of time surgically removing inefficiency from supply chains and they should be commended for that. When you look at modern supply chains, people like the two of you have been hired and, and the employees of these firms have been hired to just systematically squeeze out every single moment of inefficiency, every penny, you know, which pennies over time for these massive corporations turn into thousands of dollars, which turns into millions of dollars over time. Or they've just become so slick, you know. They become these lean supply chains of, and they're a thing of beauty. And you guys just sit there with these saucer-like eyes and wide-eyed amazement and such joy in what you've created. But then, um, like with any, with any incredibly efficient piece of machinery, all you got to do is throw a pebble into it, and the whole thing falls apart. And uh, you know. Now you got these companies, it's sort of like Slim Pickens and Dr. Strangelove riding the bomb down into the desert, like, yeehaw, right? Because it's all, it's all going to crap because it's, it's so efficient that now the whole thing's falling apart like that, that mousetrap game back in the 70s everybody had. It's, it's amazing to see how much we all depended on nothing going wrong, how much all of us expected that because it was so efficient, because we had tested it and it worked just fine, there was so much trust, so much expectation that nothing could possibly go wrong. Well, guess what it did? And now you look like a moron. And you should have had some kind of a backup plan. Hope is not a strategy. Never has been a strategy. And I would hate to be the CEO that goes before the board of directors and someone says, why don't we have anything to sell? Because we never thought that our supply chain would fail. And I would love for someone to go out and do a, a, a some kind of a survey to ask the, the Fortune 500, how many of them have a backup plan or resiliency plan to their supply chain? Because I bet the answer is uh, nobody or very few people. No, I mean, uh, so during the economic crisis, for example, uh, you know, one of the big issues we were working on with our clients was, uh, you know, kind of the mass uh, response to where companies were going bankrupt. 
you know, they closed the doors and their tools were inside and they had no plan for backup production. I mean, this is, uh, it, it was a major issue back then and it's a major issue now. And I, I don't get the sense that we're any more prepared now than we were then. I mean, you know, case in point, I spent a good amount of my time last week on the phone with clients talking about, hey, we need to get level set on our organization's exposure. We need to get a plan in place because uh, right now we don't have one. And, you know, where I were weighed heavy on my shoulders over the uh, over the weekend is you know, it just it's just disappointing to me that a lot of these folks I'm talking to are starting from they're really starting from kind of ground zero, which is not not a good place to be right now. And I, to that point, Will, a lot of conversations, you know, for me, it's been board season. So the last few weeks, I've spent a lot of time in boardrooms um, and predominantly with audit committees, which, you know, look at the financials and the publicly um, provided financial statements. And there's a lot of questions around this virus. Now, we may be talking about last year's financial statements, but there's questions starting to come around. Well, what are we doing about this? How are we positioned? And, you know, to your point, to even begin to kind of that, that plan or kind of that approach to it is this visibility throughout the supply chain. You know, do they truly have an understanding of, of where things are coming from, how they're sourcing and what those implications are, which kind of always amazes me in this era of, sustainability and you know corporate social responsibility that there hasn't been a bigger push on this visibility down chain because um, if you'd have that visibility then you'd be able to put some of these plan b's in place yeah so let's let's talk about that right it's it's um you know 15 16 hours eastern standard time again on the 9th of march and today has been one of the worst days in the history of the stock market in my lifetime, right? So since the 80s, the Dow's down 8.1%. It's lost 2,100 points. The S&P 500's down 7.7% at this point. And the NASDAQ is down 6.7%. There's, there's probably going to be, you know, stockbrokers driving their Jaguars off the bridge at some point on the way home today. It's going to be a bad, bad day for the stock market. Not to make light of it, but it, I mean, it's, it's, this is a, this is, this has been a historically awful day for people in the markets. And there's going to be people coming into work tomorrow, taking advantage of a bad market. There's going to be people today who've lost entire fortunes. Um, and hopefully there's going to be people who are going to learn a lesson from today. So if you were going to say to someone, what do I need to do to understand my risk? What do I need to do to take the first steps at least to put a plan together? How would you guys set somebody um, down the path to at least get a hold of what they should be concerned about and, and maybe set up the framework to, to put something going forward. Yeah, I'll jump in. Uh, I'll jump in first. So, you know, first and foremost, you got to understand the totality of your current situation. So, I mean, that even begins with just understanding, you know, really from a, from a material supply standpoint, what are our current inventories? What are the inventories in route? What are the inventories with our tier one suppliers? And then really what, what is the status of our tier one manufacturers? Are they producing? You know, what is their capacity? Do they have limited shipping capability? And you really have to look across, you know, the organization and primarily focusing on regions where we're having issues, 
right? You got to identify the critical few. I think you also have to engage those suppliers, not through surveys. You got you to pick up the phone. You got to start having some conversations with them about not only what are they doing, what is their viability, what are your inventories there, but really at a two, at a tier two, tier three level, you know, what are they aware of? What concerns do they have? You know, I think that's one of the things that is going to bite people is that they're kind of looking just at, you know, the suppliers they deal with directly, but they're not really even thinking about the suppliers to their suppliers. But, but it's all hands on deck. You got to understand where those issues are or areas of concern. And then you got to start putting a plan in place to build business continuity plans around where those risks are. And I was at a conference two weeks ago and talking with one of the procurement uh, sourcing leaders at a, at a large you know, tech manufacturing products company. And for, for three weeks now, they've been working in a kind of hand, hand to mouth on their material supply. And they have a daily meeting globally across their supply chain professionals uh, and their sales and product managers. And they're making decisions on a day by day basis on what products they make, uh, which, which platforms they supply, and how those flow through to manufacturing. Because, you know, to your point, Pete, they've gotten so efficient that uh, they have to manage this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis just to get certain platforms produced. And that's at the expense of other platforms. And they're doing all kinds of other crazy stuff, like moving tooling in the night to regions within uh, China where things can actually be produced. But, you know, bottom line, you got to get a pulse on your situation. You got to get your plan in place and you got to start managing to it in a very active way. I think the, the one thing I would add to that maybe will um, is in getting that understanding of your current state. Um, you know, I think there's got to be, to your point, the efficiency and they're so efficient in doing what they're doing is some segmentation of your products. You know, instead of trying, I mean, I hate to use the old consulting term of boil the ocean. You know, let's get the plan in place on the critical areas first. So you've got your your high margin, high volume products. You got an understanding of that of that pool of products, and then push that that kind of plan back through the rest of the what I'd call your your second segment and third segment, kind of your B and C type products. Um, but you got to do it in a kind of a, a step fashion. Focus on the things that are critical to the organization first. So if, if you're, if you've gotten an idea of what you need to, to get, um, how would you go about identifying the, the best kinds of vendors or that new vendor set uh, that you can rely on? I mean, you know, disasters happen. We're, we're in a virus situation now. You've got all these different regions. Yeah. It's funny, Mike and I were talking earlier saying, so Pete, you know, I mean, when it comes to these duties, I'm sure you got something to say. And I'm like, uh, I kind of don't, you know, at this point. Go find some place you can get this stuff. We'll worry about tariffs later. It's kind of the worst of your worries right now. Just find some place you can get it. So, you know, once you found some place you can get this stuff, or how, how do you identify that you need to find some place new? How do you identify those places? Well, you know, it, it, it's funny you say that. So, so a lot of times when we're working with our clients, uh, we're often asked, you know, hey, do you have a, a list, a magic list of all the people? that produce this stuff are capable 
would be an ideal fit for us and by the way have capacity and will give us great pricing. Turns out that list is not readily available uh, for all things, all times, and every place. It, it requires a significant amount of primary research to understand the right uh, regions, locations, and then engage with the suppliers in those areas that make the most sense. So while you're ramping up on understanding where your exposure is, you need to identify, you know, through a category segmentation, for example, of the types of things that you would buy, let's call it die cast parts or, you know, machine components, for example, you need to in parallel start identifying some producers of those products. And really the first place to start looking might be suppliers you've used in the past. Uh, you know, where, where there might be opportunities either locally or regionally or domestically to identify suppliers where there's a little bit more of a known in terms of capabilities and the ability to be freight logical. That's a good, a good place to look. Uh, but uh, it's going to require primary research based on categories of competencies to have a list uh, of folks that uh, you can call upon. I'm also going to imagine you've got to have prices established too. Uh, prior to these conversations, I, or, or as part of the conversation? You know, but prior, so I mean, having prices established so that when the whole world goes to crap, they're oh, not gonna, you know, take geez. advantage of it. I mean, right now, hand sanitizer on Amazon is going for $15 for a two ounce. No, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a fair point. So, so I was thinking, I'm speaking in terms of just reacting to the current triage. Let's just pretend for a moment this utopia of proactive business continuity planning. I mean, let's entertain that for a minute. In that world, I mean, really where you have, you know, single source or risk or other issues uh, that you've identified to manage your supply chain, uh, you know, with less risk, then, then absolutely, you got to have those things pre-negotiated, understood, and a lot of folks will have a dual sourcing strategy for items. Uh, giving a certain amount of token business to ensure capabilities uh, and alignment and that those folks are there when it when it's needed. You, you certainly don't want to be in a position where you're reacting to it now. I just I just think unfortunately lots of folks are. Yeah. You know, I, I think the price gouging that is naturally going to happen when something goes bad. We saw that during the um, you know the China tariffs. There were people who knew where that price equilibrium was, where given a 17 and a half or 20% tariff, I can get away with increasing my prices by X. Therefore, I'm going to increase my prices by X. And um, they knew where that soft spot was, where they could still increase the price. But there were people who did have pre-negotiated prices in these regions. And that's, that's, those are the ones that probably did the best in these, these changing economic times. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So take it to that next step. I think I would imagine that transportation is going to be the next hardest thing to get a hold of. There were a lot of folks that were managing their, their, their uh, logistics out of spots like, um, you know, like Vietnam, Cambodia, but um, then they couldn't find spaces on planes and trains and automobiles and ships because there's only so many that call out of those places. And that was the next issue that they had, you know, no pre-negotiated rates, no established relationships with carriers and providers. So they found themselves in the same world of crap that, that they were in before, because now they've got their stuff, they just can't move it. So any words of encouragement on that, boys? That's uh, actually not a word of encouragement. You know, 
uh, I'm dealing with our clients on a day-to-day -day basis and then hearing things from others uh, as we work in the market. And, uh, you know, the, the updates that I've been receiving today in terms of availability of, of uh, container loads, as an example, is that it's getting very, very tight. And some of our clients today were talking about uh, receiving letters from their their suppliers and or customers uh, looking for safe harbor in force majeure situations. Uh, so, uh, you know, anything that you can do to plan in advance and secure the capacity that is available to you is an excellent first step. Uh, but you can't anticipate that there's going to be tightness in the market, especially on an international basis near term. Yeah, and I want, I want to talk about that term force majeure because I don't think most people in our business truly understand it. When you've got a will of God, act of God kind of situation because of a global outbreak of a virus. So just consider that, right? I mean, how are we supposed to know that that the good old mother earth was going to give us a brand new form of the flu and who knows how it started. Personally, I blame Justin Bieber. I think the Biebs had something to do with this, but um, it was either that or some sort of Korean boy band between the music and the hair, hair gel. I'm, I'm putting my blame on that somehow. Bring back Black Sabbath. That's all I say. But the, um, you know, the, the reality is that this, this virus, no shipping company, no port, no supplier could have possibly known that this was going to happen. So you can't hold these transportation companies, these port authorities responsible for the outcome. And that puts them in a position where they can't be held responsible for having to increase rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it gives them an opportunity, in my opinion, because they are a unregulated monopoly to do some pretty silly things with their rates. So I expect, right. I expect it to get pretty ugly. And Pete, I'm gonna, I don't know if you saw, I believe it was a Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg article uh, two, three weeks ago, where even before you get to the transportation companies, there was actually some manufacturers starting to use force majeure because they were saying, look, we can't get our workforce into the, into the building or the plant to actually manufacture because of this virus, because of restricted travel. Um, so I think you're seeing some press out there around even from a supplier kind of production floor some organizations trying to, to claim that. Yeah. And it, isn't it crazy? Cause that seems like the kind of thing that would be in a contract that most folks would just gloss over. You're like, yeah, whatever. Like that's ever going to happen in this situation. And lo and behold, here it is. So um, I think a lot of folks are wishing they would have paid more attention to that part of the contract here in 2020. Yeah. And it's, it's just a situation right now where just near term, there's just, still a lot of uncertainty you know i don't think people you know fully have their arms around their own current situation in all cases i mean so getting your arms around your situation first and foremost and then it's it's just going to require some some daily management going forward to uh to keep things running as smoothly as you as you can and then beyond that uh, i mean lessons learned hopefully carried forward so that, uh, you know, when and if we have these types of situations again, we're in a better spot. Yeah. Well, I think first of all, just don't eat any bat soup. Let's start with that. 
<laughs> How crazy will it be if that's what did it, right? If that's what started Start with the simple stuff. Well, wasn't it a wasn't it a fish market? I thought it was a fish market. Yeah, it was a live animal market, is what they is. Well, that's what some what people are saying. And then yeah. you've got the tinfoil hat squad who says that this was a weaponized virus that escaped from a military. Uh, I, I did hear that theory yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. Then of course there's the aliens. Had to be aliens. Well, that's where I'm putting my money. Yeah. Yep. Know, what, whatever. But um, bat soup, man. There are people are saying bat soup. I have eaten some wacky things on my trips to China. Um, I think the strangest thing I've ever been, I've ever had to endure was jellyfish. I hate eating the jellyfish. And um, all my trips to China, the thing I, I, I look forward to the least, and this is, you know, I'm a powerfully built man. So from... <laughs> having to ride in public transportation and have people stare at me to taking showers that were built for someone a third my size. I hate the obligatory Chinese seafood dinner, which usually happens um, about three or four days into my trip when my stomach has finally settled down and I have to eat um, whatever, whatever seafood is thrown onto my plate and I cannot escape it. Um, and I, I walk out of that meal hating my entire life, every decision I've made in my career. And um, I go back to whatever Marriott property I'm staying at, eat a cheeseburger, and just pray for death. That's what I do. I pray for death every time. Uh, okay, so about, I'm going to close this out here in a minute. I wanted to, um, I've, I've already asked Will these questions. So Mike, you get to answer them today. I'm not sure you knew these were coming. But there are a number of questions that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. Okay. Okay. All right. So question number one, what is the first car that you ever had and what happened to it? Boy, I'm going to get a lot of grief for this answer. Um, the first car I ever had was a Porsche 914. Oh, for Christ's sakes. That we saved from my cousin's farm and rebuilt it and then sold it to buy my second car. Okay. So what year did you have this Porsche 914? Oh boy. 1976. Okay. What year was the Porsche 914? No, correction. 1986. I did not start driving when I was six years old. <laughs> what year was it? It was a, I believe it was a 72, maybe. Okay. And was it the yellow? As I've only seen a couple colors of it. Uh, no, when I got it, it was what I would call extremely rust silver. Okay. And did it like the, the target top version? Because I've, I've seen many. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. And so did you have to rebuild it? Was it? Um... Yep. We rebuilt it. Had a friend that was a... Uh, German auto mechanic. So we rebuilt it, painted it, did not go with the yellow, went with the red. Okay. Um, and had it up and running and drove it for a couple of years. Do you remember which, which version of the engine you had in it? Was, was it the, the one seven, the one eight? Do you remember which? Uh... I think it was the one eight. Okay. All right. It's so, the funnest um, car I've ever owned just to be. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, you work for an accounting firm, so most people probably expect that you you rock a Kia back and forth to work now. It's um, well, now it's a Prius. Oh, you drive a Prius, dude. <laughs> Why would you even admit to that? That's I do not drive a Prius. Okay, I, all right. 
okay. Anytime I meet someone who drives a Prius, I just say to him, Steve McQueen would never drive a Prius. So I don't know why you would subject yourself to that. Okay. And what was the second car you ever drove? That's your Tahoe, your first one. It was a uh, Camaro Z28. Oh, now we're talking. Did you have, yeah, did you have like beautiful (laughs) flowing locks in your Z28? Pete, you know me. I have no hair. I've yeah. never had hair. So okay, all right. What no year was your locks? What year was your Z twenty eight? Uh, probably like a I don't know eighty mid eighties, right. you know, like early to mid eighties. So I've got this picture now of you rocking down the highway. Um, so what were we blasting? Were we more of a journey guy or was it uh, Motley Crue? Motley Crue. Okay, so you had no. Motley, no? Pete, I thought you liked me until you threw out the journey comment. Okay, so what we what do we have going on in the tape deck? It, it was a bit of a Iron Maiden rush. Maiden, okay, one of those, you know, Maiden rush, and um, did it smell of like Aqua Velva and um, Burger King? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some stale Budweiser. Uh, the Budweiser was in there, but I was more of a Ralph Lauren Polo guy. Ralph, so. Okay, all right. <laughs> Okay, all right, um, and maybe some burnt rubber from when you would go around the corners. That yep. was that was sort of the mating call of the desperate seventeen-year-old back then. So <laughs> I can see where that's going. All right, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to get let you off the hook on that one. Okay, first job right. you ever had. What was that job? Now it has to be one we got a paycheck, so it can't be some under the table thing. First job you ever had. What was it, and how much did you get paid? All right, so my first job was at a gas station. Okay. Oh, boy, and I think it was something like maybe three, four bucks an hour, if that. So you were a, you were a nozzle jockey. I was a nozzle jockey. I was not allowed into the, uh, uh, what you would call them, the, the repair bays or anything. Huh. Did you get tips? I did not. So you just pump gas and washed windows and checked oil? Pretty much. When is Changed the last a few time, tires here and there. <laughs> when's the last time any of us on this call actually popped the hood of their car and checked the oil? Oh. Ooh, yeah, that's... I can't remember. I, I'll admit, I, I have a toy for a car, so I, I have to do it frequently. Oh, listen to you. Uh-huh. With your beard and your muscles. <laughs> and my lack of my lack of sense to buy a good adult person's car. <laughs> what are you driving there, Niblo? Go ahead and brag. What is it? Yep. That's on the way out. But I had a I got a Jeep Grand Cherokee, but the Overland Edition with the uh, the V8 Hemi in it and the Quadra Drive system. I mean, it's just it's basically like if you watched Thundercats in the '80s, it's like the the current equivalent of a Thundercat vehicle. And then I had to, you know, jack it up a little bit and put some big tires on it. That's because you're short. It's a short. But it's on the way out. It's on the way out. It's gone. Right. Midlife so, crisis over. A normal so, sized man wouldn't have to have a jacked up Jeep. No, would, someone would, taller. <laughs> yeah. My Jeep, my, Jeep this, isn't, my Jeep isn't lifted. I hate to say this, and I know I just broke one of your rules, Pete, but uh, I have a vision of Will sitting at the red light, looking at yeah. the guy sitting next to him. Totally. Going, you got a Hemi in that thing? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, Will, 
Will is one. Will is one hundred percent. He's probably blasting like Foreigner or um, Night Ranger, and um, he's he's. So for those of you who haven't seen a picture of Will, he has a luxuriously long beard, and he's probably like stroking his beard with one hand. He's got his hand on the steering wheel with the other, like just revving it, like "Come on!" Just waiting to just like lay a patch and, and put this guy down. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be laughing if it wasn't true. <laughs> uh, oh man, I, I'm always looking at resto mods, so I'm probably just as bad as Will. I, if you know, if I if I could, I would, I would totally have like a totally restored um, 1965 GTO, and I would burn rubber on these snotty kids all the time i would you know playing like black sabbath's first four records as i did it all right last question last question and it's a good one if i had a magic wand and um the rules of nature and physics did not apply and i could wave that magic wand and i could give you any job any job whatsoever what would that job be dream job oh i'm thinking uh probably a pilot okay like fighter pilot or or flying people around either just put me in a cockpit controlling a plane wow see i'd, I'd do a lot of throwing up i don't think i'd be very good at that <laughs> that's uh that's good wills was like he'd want to help people and you know be involved more in the community he was just saying he's saying all the sensitive crap so girls would like him I, I didn't flowers yeah sure yeah but i i appreciate both of you joining us today it's always a pleasure to have you um will and um i appreciate your insights it's a it's a difficult topic because you know we're, we're basically second guessing people um which isn't fun to do but i'm hoping that given all of the trauma that people are, are having to endure right now that they take the opportunity to say to themselves you know never again and put themselves in a situation where they don't have to be so full of anxiety um, the next time something like this happens. So I appreciate both of you joining me today and I hope that our listeners got something out of it. If, if um, anybody would like to get a hold of either of these gentlemen, I will put their email in the um, body of the uh, podcast and you can feel free to reach out to either of them if you have any questions. And uh, again, thank you both for joining us and thank you all for tuning in to the Trade Geek Podcast. We'll see you again soon. Thanks guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, guys.